Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday. The Ben is at nursery, the pot of Yorkshire. It's been drunk. I've also had a bowl of crave today, so we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that would bizarrely call the noughties to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast. This is episode 39. And in episode 39, we're predominantly in London and in North London specifically. We're going to be talking about Arsenal's run to the 2006 Champions League final. We're going to be talking about their, as well, less than successful semi-final in the same competition with Manchester United in 2009. Also, in the table never lies, we're going to the Premier League in the 2005-06 season. Please give us a little boost on the algorithms with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Give us a follow, give us a subscribe. We're here every week on anywhere you get your podcast, anywhere good way you get your podcast with the Noise Nostalgia Podcast. And some more podcasts to come in the summer, but that's a secret. Let's get stuck in. We go back to 1963, and it is in 1963, where Arsenal made their very, very first steps into Europe, and that was a last 16 defeat to RFC Liège in the Fairs Cup, the old uh, UEFA Cup there. Seven years later, they were back. They were beating the great Ajax side in the semi-finals, featuring, of course, the likes of Johan Cruyff, Neyskins perhaps, and Arsenal would win the first cup that year, beating Anderlecht. And in the following year, they attempted to retain that first cup. And they almost won a treble, of course, back home. They won the League and Cup double in 71. But in the first cup quarterfinal, they went out to German opposition and to FC Köln on away goals in that quarterfinal. The following year, Ajax had their revenge as Arsenal were in their first ever European Cup. And they would bow out in the quarterfinals. And of course... Ajax and Johan Cruyff and Johan Neyskins, they would have matured by this point and, of course, Ajax won the European Cup in 72. Meanwhile, Arsenal had to go 
without six years for uh, European competition in 78 and 79, 81 and 82 and 83 and 83, 82 and 83. They'd go out of the UEFA Cup at the early stages to Red Star Belgrade in the third round, to Winterslag in the second round and to Spartak Moscow in the very first round. But in and amongst that, it was a it was a successful season or almost successful season for Arsenal in 1980 in the Cup Winners' Cup final. They lost on penalties to Valencia, Pippin, Juventus and Trapattoni's Juventus to that final in 1980. But ultimately, Graham Ricks, Liam Brady missed in the shootout against Spanish opposition. Spanish opposition being a fawn in Arsenal's side and they would be, of course, in this very match that we're about to cover. But first... We've got to discuss the 1991-92 European Cup. Obviously, they were banned from the 1990-91 tournament because of the Hazel disaster, but they were back in the European Cup in 1991, but ultimately missed out on the last 16, in the last 16 rather, losing after extra time to Benfica, missing out on those semi-final group stages. The 90s did mean three finals in Europe for Arsenal. They beat Palmer in the 1994 Cup Winners' Cup final with a goal from Alan Smith. They would lose the 1995 final, of course, thanks to that Naeem lob that Tottenham supporters probably still herald him for as he would go on to play for Spurs. Real Zaragoza, the team there, winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 95. And perhaps it is slightly forgotten in and amongst Arsenal's rise under Arsene Wenger, of course. Arsene Wenger and Arsenal were now, by the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, predominantly in the Champions League. And the 2000 UEFA Cup final would feature Arsenal. It would also feature Galatasaray. Galatasaray would, of course, beat Leeds in the semi-final and they would beat Arsenal as well. Arsenal losing another final on penalties. There were other campaigns for Arsenal in 1996. They lost to Borussia Mönchengladbach in the UEFA Cup's first round. And in 1997, they lost to Pauk in, again, the UEFA Cup first round. Arsene Wenger, of course, that season, he would go on to bigger and better things. The League and Cup double in uh, Arsenal's first league title since 1991, Arsenal's first Premier League title, of course, under Wenger. And in 1998 and 99, they went out in the Champions League groups to the likes of Dynamo Kiev and Lons. Dynamo Kiev, of course, would go on to the semi-finals of the tournament that year. Another year passed, they finished second, but with the Champions League being revamped and expanded, they made the group stages again. But it was another group stage elimination in 1999, which fed them, of course, into that UEFA Cup final. That was thanks to Gabriel Batistuta and his batty goals at Wembley. And Wembley, yeah, Arsenal were playing at Wembley. Highbury wouldn't be used by Arsenal in the Champions League, at least until 2001. But they would return home in that following season. They got a comeback win against Shakhtar. The next, they got a Freddie Lundberg double against Lazio and they put four beyond Sparta Prague. And finally, Arsenal were beyond a group stage. But unfortunately, UEFA said, no, we're going to put another group stage in front of you to overcome. And at home, Arsenal chucked away two wins against Bayern Munich and Lyon in the second group stages. And they were thrashed by Spartak Moscow of all teams, 4-1 in Moscow. But you had Thierry Henry getting winners in Lyon and at home to Spartak. And a loss in the final match day in Munich against Bayern Munich, the champions. Arsenal were away in the scoreline from Moscow to see if they would be in a quarterfinal, in a Champions League knockout for the very first time. A Lyon win would send them out, but... The French champions, they drew. Arsenal were finally in the Champions League knockout stages, the quarterfinals. To that team that they lost out to in the 1980 Cup Winners' Cup final, it was of course Valencia. And they wouldn't be an outright winner in this tie either, with Valencia winning on away goals 
Valencia would, of course, go on to make the final losing to Bayern Munich in 2001. Bayer Leverkusen and Deportivo would do Arsenal in the following group stages in 2002. In the second group stages, Valencia and Ajax doing the same in the 2002-03 season. So the second knockout stage appearance for Arsenal in the Champions League wouldn't be until the invincible season. And of course, they wouldn't be successful in that one. Losing to Chelsea, losing to Wayne Bridge in that quarterfinal as Chelsea went on to the semifinals and of course lost to Monaco. The following season... They got to the last 16, regressing slightly in the new format where Arsenal didn't have to get through two group stages. They could just get through one and then get into the last 16, which is a straight knockout. But Bayern Munich had their number once more that season. That's not the last time we'd hear that. Not the last time Arsenal fans would experience heartache by Bayern Munich. So we go to the 2005-06 Champions League campaign. Arsenal had lost their goals conceded record in the Premier League to Chelsea the follow the previous season in 2004-05 thanks to Jose Mourinho's brand of tactics there. So what did they do about it? Well, they attempted to set a new defensive record in the Champions League, of course, and it didn't start too great, to be honest. They squeaked through against FC Tun 2-1 thanks to a last-minute goal from Dennis Bergkamp. They won 2-1 in Amsterdam too. But that Marcus Rosenborg goal was the last goal that Arsenal would concede Right up until the final. So you've got 10 games there where Arsenal did set a consecutive clean sheet record, breaking AC Milan's record from the Arrigo Saki days. Then you've got Thierry Henry scoring absolute beauty of an outside of the boot goal in Prague. Came on early, wasn't supposed to be featuring. He rushed himself back from injury, scored twice, became Arsenal's greatest scorer in their history, beating Ian Wright's record. And Arsenal won simply back at home against the Czech team. They were already qualified, the BFC turned again late on in uh, in Switzerland, needing a Robert Perez penalty with uh, two minutes to go in that one. And Tun, the team who caused Arsenal arguably the most problems in the group stages, were a semi-professional team playing in the third tier of Swiss football when Arsene Wenger took charge of Arsenal in September 1996. Arsenal were confirmed as group winners and whichever way you spun it, Arsenal were going to have a tough ride of it in the last 16. They was into Milan on one hand if they'd uh, finished second in the group, or it was Real Madrid. The nine times winners, Zidane in his last season at the Bernabeu, you've got Ronaldo there, you've got David Beckham, you've got Roberto Carlos, Raul, the Galacticos, Guti. Meanwhile, on that night in the Bernabeu, Arsenal sent 18 men. 12 of them, arguably, were boys. They were under 25. But better than all of those Galacticos, perhaps Thierry Henry. You've got him rushing through the... Real Madrid team, all of them. Guti was beaten. Ronaldo was beaten. Sergio Ramos was beaten. You've got the iconic Peter Drury commentary accompanying it. And for me, it does have shades of that Lionel Messi goal in the same venue in 2011 in the semi-finals. But for me, it's probably better he beats more men and the finish is better. And that 1-0 win for Arsenal in the Bernabeu marked the very, very first time that an, an English team had won at the Bernabeu. Man United had two stabs at eight in semi-finals, both in 57 and 68. They lost in 57. They drew in 68, but would go through to the final, of course, in that one. Ipswich had a go. They drew in the UEFA Cup in 73. Derby had a go. They got thrashed 5-1 in 75 in the European Cup quarterfinal. Spurs even had a go, drawing 0-0 in 1985. Man United came back in 2000 as European champions, drew 0-0 before being eliminated 3-2 at Old Trafford. Meanwhile, Leeds were the last to have a go but lost 3-2 in Spain at the second round group stages. The next English team to go to the Bernabeu was Liverpool. 
three years later on and they won as well. And the third and final team, the third and final English team to beat Real Madrid at the Bernabeu was, of course, last season in the last 16, Manchester City. So you've got three English wins there in a total of 17 games at the Bernabeu in European competition. The next knockout stage match for Arsenal was a reunion with Patrick Vieira as he returned to Highbury in the quarterfinals in the black and white of Juventus. Vieira, who had led Arsenal to their very, very first forays into the Champions League, was now about to try and stop them from winning it for the very first time. But it was his long-term successor and former protégé that broke the deadlock, Cesc Fabregas, squeezing in a low shot in the corner, Vieira losing the ball for the goal, and Cesc versus Vieira in that home and away tie in the quarterfinal. I think it's a story that goes and said, we think about the Villarreal semi-final, we think about the Real Madrid, the Henri goal in the Bernabeu, well, at least I do anyway. And you've got Fabregas assisting Thierry Henry for the second. Cesc was in the driving seat, Arsenal were in the driving seat, and they would hold Juventus to a nil-nil draw. And as a result, thanks to Villarreal's win in Inter Milan, got the easier semi-final. And that nil-nil broke AC Milan's record to successive clean sheets in Champions League competition. Let's go to the semi-final. So Thierry Henry thought he had put Arsenal ahead. He looked onside, but given offside. And Colo Torre was instead the hero, poking in the goal. Arsenal took a 1-0 lead into Spain. Very tight aggregate scoreline going into an away leg in Europe. And for me, that game, I remember the Highbury squirrel <laughs> was running around the penalty box all game in Highbury. But that's by the by. So we go to El Madrigal, Arsenal's first ever Champions League or even European Cup semi-final. You've got Jens Lehmann pulling off save after save after save. Diego Forlant was playing for Villarreal at the time. He nearly poked one into the top corner. And then Gael Clichy, he bowled over a Villarreal player. Penalty was given. Jens Lehmann was the hero in Spain, saving from, of all players, Juan Roman Riquelme. Would Lehmann be the hero in Paris against Barcelona and Frank Rijkaard? Well, the short story was, of course, no. Jens Lehmann... Tripping Samuel Eto on the edge of the area. Julie trying to poke the ball into the net, but the referee had already blown up. It was a red card, the first ever red card in the Champions League final, and he was sent off inside 20 minutes. Wenger had to shuffle the deck. Robert Pires ending his Arsenal career in ignominy, being substituted off during the short straw. And Ashley Cole played his last game for Arsenal as well to it. Left back just his third Champions League game all season. You've got Sol Campbell. He returned to the fold after missing a few months out of action. He was back in the semi-final and partnered. Semi-final hero, Colo Torre in the centre of that defence. You've got Emmanuel Abue on the right. You've got Alexander Kleb down the left. Lundberg just off on reach. Gilberto and Fabregas in that fantastic centre midfield partnership. Arsenal, around this time, they'd bid goodbye to Highbury a week or two prior salvage in that Champions League spot for the previous, for the uh, following summer. And they wanted new pastures, new eras, and what better way to welcome the Emirates Stadium in than bringing home the Champions League trophy. Thierry Henry had a great chance early on, but he was fought by Victor Valdez. And he again forced uh, the Spaniard into a save from 18 yards. And this was a Barcelona side with Deco, with Xavi, Puyol, Ronaldinho, Ludovic Juli, Samuel Eto'o, Rafa Marquez... Iniesta would come off the bench. Messi missed out through injury, but, you know, it's still a world-class Barcelona team. And I said, I think it was last week, where I think this sort of, this team gets lost between the, the Cruyff Dream team of 92 and, of course, the Guardiola teams of 2008, 2011, and even the Luis Enrique team of uh, 2015, the treble winners there. 
Arsenal, though, in this final, they had the better of the game in the Stade de France. Sol Campbell heading in from a free kick. Arsenal's only Champions League final scorer. Um, you can add him to the likes of Ray Kennedy, John Hartson, and Alan Smith, and even Alex Awobi for Arsenal players who've scored in European finals. Maybe we'll add more onto that list in uh, the following month in the Europe League final anyway. Sammy Leto hit a post. Ronaldinho went close from a free kick. Arsenal were clinging on desperately for the uh, final eight minutes of the half and the big decision of the game for me the, where the game spun because Arsenal were still getting chances in the in the second half on the counter you've got Henrik Larsson coming on for Mark Van Bommel and that completely changed the, the, the game Arsenal were still getting efforts in as I said Alexander Kleb had an effort saved Henri was embarrassing Puyol and Marquez down that left hand channel but he uh Put a shot wide, he hit the side netting as well. Lundberg forcing uh, Valdez into a save. The onus was on Barcelona. Henri was missing chance after chance. He had to take one sooner or later. And we think of this Barcelona team in terms of the great magic, the great goals from Ronaldinho. He produced little flickers here and there. His passing was pretty decent in the game that I watched. But I don't think he did enough. The final did belong to me, at least to Henrik Larsson. And in the final quarter of an hour, he glanced the ball through to Eto, whether it was offside or not is another story. Eto squeezed the ball through Almunia for 1-1. And then the opposite channel, Larson was there again, feeding Juliano Belletti in. And he fired it through Almunia's legs. Another bit of suspect goalkeeping there from the uh, replacement Spaniard. And, of course, Barcelona led 2-1 late on. The two subs combining, Barcelona had won Champions League number two. Meanwhile, Arsenal still wait for title number one. Rijkaard praised Arsenal's efforts for their efforts on the counter-attack with 10 men and they did look arguably the most dangerous team before the substitute of Henrik Larsson, which completely changed the game. Arsene Wenger found the result difficult to accept because of the wrong decision, because of Eto's goal, where he's offside. He was even offside for the, in the lead-up to the red card for Jens Lehmann as well. So two decisions that could have, well, would have absolutely changed the game and Thierry Henry was critical of the referee too. Uh, but the fact remains that you wouldn't have had any of these interviews or any of these opinions or views that had Henri just converted one of those one-on-ones. He had about three in the entire game, so it could have easily been a thrashing, really. I asked you for your favourite Arsenal memories in the Champions League. Harry Holland, a good friend of the show, says the 2006 final. Meanwhile, we've got George HS2706, big Chelsea fan. He says... His favourite memory of Arsenal in the Champions League is them losing to Chelsea in 2004, around the time that everyone was claiming that they were favourites, but they never got anywhere. And uh, Anglo-Italian pod, his favourite memory was the run to this final, uh, not conceding a goal with that defence. Lehman's save in the penalty against Villarreal, then the red card, of course, in the final, and Wenger sadly taking off Robert Pires. And the 2006 run has to be it for me. And as a United fan, I'm not too keen on English teams winning the winning the trophy. So something like this for me is perfect. You create the good stories, the Cesc versus Vieira, the Henri goal at the Bernabeu, but ultimately they don't win it. So you didn't have the uh, slapstick drama of Chelsea against Napoli in 2012, the Gerard Beauty against Olympiacos in 2004-05. You had the pragmatic jeopardy of keeping six clean sheets from six knockout stage ties, which I don't think has been repeated. It'll be struggled to be repeating now with the way the Champions League's going and how many goals are scored in the knockout stages these days. There's wonderful moments from all the English winners, English finalists. You've got the Skulls volley against Barcelona in 2008. You've got the Roy Keane performance in Turin in 99 from a Manchester United's perspective. Manchester City, if their moment 
if they win, their moment will surely come in the semi-finals this year. And they they play in PSG tonight, as I'm recording, obviously. You'll know the result after this episode has been released. I like to think uh, this run, this Arsenal run, would get remembered in the long term, at least, above the embarrassments against Bayern, above the injustice against Barcelona with the Van Persie red card, which we'll discuss later. And now we're reaching a near half decade of absence at the Champions League at the Emirates in a post-Arsen Wenger world, a world that people said that commentators would say that Arsenal would be fine because they've had that downtime amongst Wenger's reign, the downtime that Manchester United didn't have and then they're still suffering now, eight years on. Arsenal was supposed to come out of it a, a bit easier. The transition was supposed to be a bit easier, but they find themselves needing to go through the back door again to reach the Champions League. They attempted it in 2019 in the Europa League final, lost 4-1 to Chelsea. Perhaps in Gdansk next month, it's time for another All-England final, Manchester United versus Arsenal. Man United, of course, looking seemingly on to qualify for the Champions League. Arsenal far from that in 10th. And speaking of Arsenal, Man United, seamless link. We're talking about them after this short break and their tussle in the 2008-9 Champions League semi-final. In the long-distinguished rivalry between Manchester United and Arsenal, United are stuck on 99 wins. Arsenal are stuck on 85 wins. But it all started October the 13th, 1894. Newton Heath, Woolwich Arsenal, 3-3 in the old second division. They wouldn't spend much time at the top together, really, until the 1990s. So you've got 100 years of history there. United were nowhere where when Arsenal dominated in the 1930s with Herbert Chapman. Similarly, Arsenal weren't really anywhere when United conquered Europe in the 1960s. United were just coming back around, awaking from a slumber when George Graham took Arsenal to two titles in three years. The early 50s is the only time where they've been at the top together. Matt Busby ending United's long wait for a title. Arsenal winning the league title the following season in 1953. But even then, the prevailing force in English football was Stan Cullis' Wolverhampton Wanderers team. And you've also got teams of Burnley and Tottenham winning the league title. You got the five-minute final in 1979 where it was all decided in the final five minutes between Arsenal and Manchester United in that year's FA Cup final in 79. You've got Arsenal losing to Manchester United in two domestic cup semi-finals in 1983 as well with Ron Atkinson in charge at Old Trafford. And by the time that Ferguson had succeeded Ron Atkinson, the rivalry was simmering, simmering to a lovely little boil. His first match was a 2-0 win that ended a long Arsenal unbeaten run. It also featured some questionable tackles from Norman Whiteside and you've got David Rowcastle being provoked into a red card, a mini brawl that was the style at the time. Brian McLaren and Nigel Winterburn got into a into it at a subsequent FA Cup match and that particular one-on-one resurfaced in a league contest in October 1990. Brian McClare smashing Nigel Winterburn and what ensued can only be described as a Royal Rumble except this one had 21 entrants. David Seaman watching on from his goal line not wanting to uh, get into that scuffle. Dennis Irwin in the match winner for Arsenal and as Limpa. Yeah, there was a football match. It was 1-1-0 by Arsenal. They were the other focal point of the scuffle. And Keith Hackett, a contributor to this show before, he showed a yellow card to Winterburn and Limper in the the aftermath. No Man United uh, decisions against them. Both teams will be deducted points. Arsenal got two points as they had taken part in a brawl before, apparently, against Norwich. Arsenal won the match, won the league. United's minus one point, not really factoring into anything. They were mid-table still, but... 
were the FA Cup champions at the time. But as George Graham fizzled out at Highbury, United and Ferguson roared to four league titles in five years. Ferguson had a new challenger in North London, though he'd ridden the challenges of Newcastle, of Blackburn, and now we had one Arsene Wenger. Ferguson instantly made himself known to the new to the new manager at Arsenal. Such quotes as, they say he's an intelligent man, he speaks five languages. Well, I've got a 15-year-old boy from Ivory Coast who speaks five languages. We've also got the famous, he's come from Japan quote. Fergie constantly belittling him in the uh, media. And Arsenal, he belittled them as well, he stated that they used to be a big club. And by 98, Arsenal had become a big club again. They'd won the League and Cup double. United and Ferguson had to outdo that though. They pipped Arsenal to both domestic trophies in 99 in the semi-final and on the final day in the Premier League. And of course, they had to go one better, winning the Champions League, something that Arsene Wenger would never win. The league games that season, 98-99 season, were no real classics. You've got Nicky Butt getting a red card in a pasting. Arsenal pasting Man United 3-0 at Highbury early on in the season. You've got a controversial Manchester United penalty at Old Trafford who'd have thought that in a 1-1 draw in the reverse. The FA Cup game, of course, though, was an instant classic. Vieira giving the giving Giggsy the ball. You got the last minute penalty save from Schmeichel, the whole the best FA Cup game in history for me. The Premier League had become a duopoly though by the Battle of Old Trafford in September 2003. United had won three in a row. Arsenal had won another double in 2002. Even though Fergie had to slip in a snide remark, he remarked that his 2002 team was better than Arsenal, but Wenger quipped back. He said that everyone thinks that they have the prettiest wife at home. And we thought it had come to a head with the Battle of Old Trafford in September 2003. Vieira was controversially sent off. Who'd have thought that? Some needle there. United win a last-minute penalty. Ruvanisler, of course, cracks the penalty off the bar in stoppage time. Lauren and Martin Keown got absolutely mental. Keown doing his best clothesline to the back of the head. Dozens of players receive fines or suspensions in and amongst the fracas. Seems not too far away from 1990. This wasn't the apex of it, really. Arsenal, of course, went on to finish that season invincible. United won another FA Cup semi-final against them at Villa Park in and amongst with uh, Gary Neville and Paul Scholes' treatment of Jose Antonio Reyes not going unnoticed by the Arsenal players. And, of course, it came to a head at Pizzagate. The match, what was supposed to be Arsenal's 50th game unbeaten. Controversial decision, who'd have thought it for Man United's penalty? So Campbell tripping Wayne Rooney. Rude Van Nistelrooy avenging that penalty heartbreak. Wayne Rooney getting the other one in a 2-0 win. But perhaps the most famous part came off the pitch. Cesc Fabregas revealed years later to have thrown the pizza in uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's face post-match. Wenger refused to apologise for his play, saying that Ferguson had gone too far this time. Wenger had said earlier on in the season that he wasn't going to rise to Ferguson's bait any longer. They were getting quite uh, hot under the collar because we've got one Jose Mourinho coming around, they were leading the Premier League with Chelsea by an absolute mile. They were champions-elect by the time that Arsenal and Manchester United faced off again. February the 1st, 2005, Highbury, Arsenal-Manchester United. The match wouldn't get out of the tunnel before the fighting carried on. You've got Keane and Vieira squaring off in the tunnel. Gary Neville telling on Vieira to Roy Keane and the United lads in the dressing room like one of those uh, one of the school kids who asks for homework at the end of the lesson at school. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. I remember as a United fan being absolutely pumped up for this. The players, though, were better behaved after the uh, pre-match sparring. There was a bit of needle, but there wasn't too much there. The match was won with a John O'Shea chip, two Ronaldo goals, shushing the hybrid faithful in the net with Wayne Rooney there. Uh, 4-2 was the score in the end, but in the end, it didn't really matter. Mourinho's dominance 
was fizzling the rivalry into insignificance. They had a common enemy, did Wenger and Ferguson. The rivalry for me, obviously, they didn't have the proximity of London and Manchester. The rivalry needed the league title or at least something riding on it, not second and third. Wenger would be reduced to claiming fourth as a trophy, rarely threatening the title again. We had a, a mini surge in 2008, but the combination of Eduardo's leg break and a loss from a Owen Hargreaves free kick at Old Trafford and a 2-1 win for United there killed that particular challenge. Mourinho came and went. Ferguson regenerated his team, though, built around the likes of Rio Ferdinand, Vidic, Evra, Van der Sar, Carrick, Ronaldo, Rooney, Tevez, leagues above Arsenal. They won four out of six Premier League titles and a second Champions League before Ferguson came to retire in 2013. Wenger would have another crack off the Premier League title in 2016, but that ultimately, as we know, was Leicester's time. And by that point, United were struggling to break into Europe then. So again, the rivalry at another low point. I asked you for your best Premier League rivalry of all time. Harder, better, faster, stronger. Great YouTube channel where he plays video games. Check that out on YouTube there. He says, Arsenal, Wenger, Vieira versus Manchester United, Ferguson, Keane is as good as the Premier League has been for the neutral. He states that Arsenal's double winning team in 2002 was his favourite football inside of all time. So fond memories of the team winning the league at, at Old Trafford there with uh, Canu jumping over Wiltar, which for me still looks like an illusion, but there we go. Anglo-Italian Poddy says Keane versus Vieira is the best rivalry and they both defined their clubs and the league at the time. Harry Holland comes in with Manchester United versus Liverpool, which again, perhaps, again, it's a bit like Arsenal where they've never been at the top at the same time, really, because you've got United being it in the 60s, Liverpool, of course, in the 70s and 80s, United in the 90s, and only really, maybe perhaps now we're reaching a point where both are going to be at the top, obviously, going into next season. We don't really know, as we're speaking now in 2021, what Man United and uh, Liverpool are going to be like next season. But in terms of Man United versus Arsenal, that needs uh, something riding on it. Man United-Liverpool doesn't need anything riding on it. It's going to be a good game either way. And another one from Luch there, Manchester United versus Man City from 2011 to 2013. And I'll probably bring that time period back to 2009 so we can include the 4-3, we can include the two League Cup semi-finals ties, we can include Carlos Tevez swapping his allegiances red to blue, the welcome to Manchester sign, all of that, the noisy neighbours. And yeah, it's a uh, one where, again, not at the top, only that sort of brief period, 2009 to 2013, they were both fighting for league titles. Obviously, Jose Mourinho's second place in 2018, I believe. Um, yeah, that Man City were 19 points there. That doesn't count. Uh, so, and now there's not a title, there's like an inch of a title race we've got now, but it's 10 points, the difference with five to play. It's not going to happen as much as I wanted to. Anyway, mine, probably for nostalgia's sake, is Manchester United versus Arsenal, 98 to probably 2005. That February the first tie, the 4-2 win for United is probably the end of it and the start of it is probably Wenger winning the double because Arsenal rubber stamping them there as main rivals for United going forward. Obviously, it helps that Keane and Vieira were both two outspoken captains and just wanted to kill each other on the field. And let's go to what we're going to be talking about today, the Champions League tie between the two. And against the wishes, we have to go back to 1956. Against the wishes of the FA, Sir Matt Busby, or Matt Busby at the time, took Manchester United into Europe. They reached the semi-final that year. You've got Dennis Violet and Tommy Taylor starring with 17 goals between them. But they were eliminated by the great Alfredo Di Stefano Real Madrid team, as of course we've mentioned earlier with that 3-1 defeat in the Bernabeu. 
it was a team that though it was ultimately lost to the Munich Air disaster, but a team that would return in 1968. Bill Folks, Bobby Charlton, two survivors from the Munich Air disaster, they returned to beat Benfica to win the first European Cup at Wembley. Their semi-final exit the following season to eventual winners AC Milan would be Manchester United's final European Cup match ever until it got rebranded into the Champions League until the 90s when they won the Premier League of course in 1993. The early part of that decade was dogged by teams like Galatasaray in the match in hell where they lost there. They were dogged by the foreigner rule and losing to teams like Gothenburg and Barcelona in one group stages. Eliminations followed against Dortmund and Monaco. Juventus were a thorn in the side for a number of years and United returned achingly close to quarter-final and Semi-final exits. And then in 1999, it was the pinnacle. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Juventus, Inter Milan, all beaten. Part of a treble winning team. Well, Barcelona technically weren't beaten, but they got through them in the groups anyway. Ferguson had tried to rekindle that that uh, 99 team for a number of years, but the 4-4-2 was coming increasingly unstuck. You got losses against eventual champions, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, beating them in successive quarterfinals. Even Leverkusen beat them in the semi-finals in 2002, where Ferguson was supposed to... Uh, have the fairy tale ending, winning his second European Cup in Glasgow. He was supposed to retire. That was supposed to be the picture book, storybook ending, but obviously it didn't happen. By 2003, Ferguson was adapting this European team. You've got a team, though, in transition. He tried to add Juan Seba Veron to that midfield to make it a 4 5 1, 4 2 3 1, but it never really clicked. And as such, they went out to Real Madrid again in the quarterfinals because of quite simply marvellous uh, Ronaldo display at Old Trafford clapped off the field scoring three goals United out again Porto and Milan ousted them in the last 16 so they're regressing slightly and of course that would culminate in the group stage exit at the start of the 2005-06 season but the following year you've got the maturing of Ronaldo Rooney Vidic was in Evra was in Van der Sar was in but another eventual winner beat them Milan obviously they had Kaká the best player in the world at the time he got that fantastic midfield perhaps never to be beaten only perhaps for me, rivaled by the United midfielder 99 and the, probably the current Real Madrid midfield right now. Uh, but by 2008, the following year, United won their third and so far final European Cup, beating Chelsea on penalties. So we flip the coin, we go to the other side, we go to Arsenal. And since 2006, up until 2009, Arsenal hadn't acclimatised in Europe in their new home of the Emirates. They were shockingly beaten by PSV thanks to a late goal from Alex, the centre-half. Remember him from Chelsea in the last 16 in 2007. A late win in Milan against the Holders in 2008. Saw them in a quarter-final again and they were five minutes away from another semi-final. Going through on away goals they were. Emmanuel had a bio score in an 84th-minute goal. That Theo Walcott run. What a tie that is. That's, that's a forgotten tie. I remember that on ITV. Maybe it was Sky. Anyway... A Gerrard penalty, a Ryan Babel counter won it for Liverpool. Three English teams made the semi-final that year. Chelsea, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal. The only English team not invited to the elite of the elite. Anyway, in 2009, three English teams made the semi-final once more. Chelsea and Man United again. But by this time, Arsenal were there. They'd beaten Roma in an achingly long penalty shootout away from home. And I admit that I wanted Arsenal to win that game. Uh, despite me uh, saying that I don't want English teams to win. But that particular tie... I did want Arsenal to win there. United vanquished a Mourinho Inter Milan team, who would of course then go on to win the Champions League the following season. And Liverpool, of course, as we discussed previously on this show, thrashed Real Madrid 4-0. Liverpool and Chelsea, again, as we discussed previously on this show, took part in a classic quarter-final, whilst United scraped through from Porto, obviously that mesmeric Cristiano Ronaldo goal from 40 yards. Not the last time that he'd do that in this particular Champions League campaign, but that's 
for a few minutes' time. Arsenal had a reunion with Villarreal. This time, though, it was far simpler than the 1-0 KG affair in the semi-finals from 2006. This time, they won 4-1 on our group with a 3-0 win at the Emirates. And it left Arsenal paired up with Manchester United in the semi-final. John O'Shea settling the first leg from a corner at Old Trafford. Arsenal came away without the away goal, but the tie was finally poised. And looking at the two 11s, I'm going to read them out very quickly for you. You've got Almunia, Sagnatore, Johan Joru, Kieran Gibbs, Sami Nasri, Alex Song, Cesc Fabregas, Theo Walcott, Robin Van Persie and Emmanuel Adeboya for Arsenal. Van der Sar, O'Shea, Rio Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, Patrice Evra, Fletcher Carrick, Anderson, Ronaldo Park and Rooney in the United 11. Two, four, three, threes. The game had evolved by the end of the 2000s. My question would be who gets in that United team from the Arsenal team? Maybe... Maybe Bakary Sagner at right back for John O'Shea. Gary Neville was out with an injury at the time. Um, despite the song that they sing on Old Trafford, probably Fabregas gets in there from ahead of Anderson as well. Maybe Sami and Nasri, but in midfield, you probably want Fletcher in there as well to do the uh, dirty work. And Park Ji Sung, as opposed to Theo Walcott, I mean, Park Ji Sung had a bit of a floating role and he, he again, like Fletcher, did all the dirty work and Theo Walcott, I don't think, I think he's a bit too brittle in terms of European games. So maybe I'm being biased, but nine of those Man United players in that combined 11, and I hate combined 11s as much as the next person. An Arsenal goal would make the game interesting though, uh, but a United goal, for me, I always felt as a United fan going into this, as if United scored, it was game over. And within eight minutes, that was true. Kieran Gibbs unfortunately slipped. And if you're a neutral, you must have been dying for Arsenal to score that goal to make it interesting. That heartbreaking Kieran Gibbs slip, Jason Park slipping in, just had enough to poke it in. And with eight minutes gone, Arsenal needed three goals. Three minutes later, though, they got a free kick. Maybe it was an unjust free kick, but I mean, Robin Van Persie comes through the back of Cristiano Ronaldo. Soft, maybe, but, you know, he doesn't get the ball. Clyde Tilsley said, Clive Tilsley said it was too far for Ronaldo to think about. Apparently not 35 yards, 2-0 in no time. For me, it, it would be a great free... It would be the best free kick ever scored if it just went in the top corner. But it's so low, and if there's a competent goalkeeper in net with Manuel Munia, not or Jens Lehmann, rather, rather it doesn't go in. Um, and for me, it sort of put, takes a gloss off it a little bit. And for me, obviously, the game was over inside 10 minutes. United, though, still pressed on. They were so violent in their attacking. Rooney nearly curled one in after 16 minutes. Almunia did better this time, tipping it around the post. Ronaldo was absolutely everywhere. He forced Almunia into at least five saves before the hour. Uh, Ronaldo believed he was number one, pointing his finger up at the Arsenal fans every time he scored, and he scored on the hour. A classic counter-attacking goal from Manchester United. Rooney and Ronaldo did the same against Bolton in a, a lesser game in the Premier League a couple of years before, but this was the ultimate one. Ronaldo back heel into Park. Park switched it out to Wayne Rooney. Rooney crosses it into Ronaldo. R Ronaldo shoots it into the roof of the net. United fans going ballistic at that end. Ronaldo 2, United 3. Game done, 4-0 on aggregate. United echoing 1968 in their all-blue kit. And for me, Arsenal didn't threaten the goal at all. I watched a pretty comprehensive highlights package in build-up for this, but in an act that was taking United down with them, ultimately in the long term, Fletcher was sent off for a, a last-man tackle on Cesc Fabregas. And as we can see, now he got the ball and... Fletcher was red-carded, sent off, suspended for the final against Barcelona in a game where United needed their best midfield three, which would have been 
probably Anderson to do with the energy. You've got Fletcher and Carrick. Maybe Scholes gets in ahead of Anderson, who knows? But they would, of course, lose out in Rome. Xavi, Iniesta and Busquets running Manchester United ragged. Title not retained. Barcelona, of course, the greatest team ever to have lived. Manchester United lost Cristiano Ronaldo after that match. That was his last match as a Man United player to Real Madrid. He won four more Champions Leagues and Manchester United have only ever been to one semi-final since. The following season, they go out in the quarterfinals to eventual finals by Munich on away goals. They'd lose that final in 2011 again to Barcelona. Going out in the groups the following season and in Ferguson's last Champions League game, lost in the last 16 to Real Madrid day. Questionable nanny red card in that one. Uh, the following season, David Moyes' only season in charge took them to the quarterfinals, losing to Bayern Munich. And the 14-15 season was United's first not in the Champions League since a certain Peter Schmeichel scored against Rutter Volgograd in the UEFA Cup first round in 1995. Under Lou Van Gaal, they missed out in the group stages in 2015. Jose Mourinho called it heritage when they lost to Sevilla in the last 16 in the 2017-18 season. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took charge midway through the following season. They would, of course, bow out to Barcelona in the quarterfinals and the same manager, Solskjaer, took them out of the group stages behind PSG and Leipzig earlier on this season. Arsenal too, they regressed, falling to again a quarterfinal in 2010 like Manchester United, this time against Barcelona and the absolute genius that is Lionel Messi with those four goals. But then as... Van Persie left, Nasri left, Adebayor left, Fabregas left. Their team changed, but their fortunes did not. They rebounded between third and fourth place for a total of, it was, I think it was a full decade. And they would only finish second on the final day, thanks to Tottenham's capitulation against Newcastle in 2016. But that would be their last top four finish in 2016. And as the likes of Van Persie became Giroud, Nasri became Sanchez, Fabregas became Wilshire, Arsenal went out in the last 16, in seven successive campaigns in the Champions League. They beat Barcelona 2-1 in 2011 at the Emirates, but lost in that game at the New Camp 3-1, which was, of course, the one with the Robin Van Persie red card. Easily one of the worst decisions in refereeing. It's worse than the Nani one uh, against Real Madrid in 2013. Um, Arsenal would be then humiliated 4-0 in Milan the following season's last 16. They ran up a 3-0 first half lead back home, but couldn't score that fourth goal and couldn't get through to the quarterfinals. I think that was AC Milan's final, one of their final uh, Champions League campaigns until next season, of course, if they qualify. Arsenal would be humiliated 3-1 at home to Bayern Munich in 2013, losing on away goals, but that, that didn't tell the whole picture, really. tell the whole story. It wasn't that close. Bayern would again beat them. Again, by a two-goal margin in 2014. Drew 1-1 in Germany this time, going through quite comfortably. The champions there, champions of course, because he won the treble in 2013. 2015 meant Monaco and another two-goal loss at home and would roll back to lose on away goals again. 2016 marked the return of Barcelona and again, another two-goal loss at home. You see the picture here and uh, Messi, Suarez and Neymar, MSN running another 3-1 win in Spain. Barcelona easily through again champions of Europe there at the time and in 2017 it was Bayern calling the famous 10-2 the 5-1 in Germany the 5-1 at home and that 10-2 aggregate loss remains Arsenal's last game in the Champions League so we're now getting on for four years and if they win the Europa League against possibly Manchester United 
will have a first Champions League game in what would be four and a half years. I asked you what was the best Manchester United Arsenal match. Kyle from In the Name of Football Podcast, another great podcast, check that out, please. He says the 8-2, of course, from 2011, or the FA Cup semi-final replay at Villa Park. Harry Holland says the 2009 Champions League semi-final, which we covered today. Nick Hale says the 2004-5 game at Highbury where United won 4-2. Also the one where Thierry Henry scored a late header in 2007. I mentioned my top three are ones that have already been mentioned. The 8-2, the Villa Park semi-final and the 4-2 win. With John O'Shea's magnificent chip and even better celebration. Remaining in England, remaining in London, we're going to the Premier League season in the table, never lies, the 2005-06 season, but a much more successful London team in Chelsea and Jose Mourinho after this short break. Welcome back. Let's read the table out as it was in the Premier League 15 years ago today. Chelsea had 88 points, Manchester United some way back on 79, Liverpool rounding out the top three with 76. All three assured of Champions League football for the following season. Tottenham rounded out the top four on 62 points. Meanwhile, you've got Arsenal on 58, Blackburn on 54 and obviously Newcastle as well on 54. Looking to get a a foothold in the race for European football, for Champions League football, you've got Bolton on 52, Wigan on 51, West Ham on 49, Charlton, Everton, Middlesbrough, Man City, Fulham and Aston Villa all languishing. In mid-table hell, meanwhile, Portsmouth were two points ahead of the dotted line on 35 points, Birmingham had 33, West Brom had 29 and Sunderland, well they were down, they were on a whopping 12 points, more on that relegation zone battle later on. We've got to start with Chelsea, we have to start with Chelsea. £94.3 million was spent the previous summer, they had a new manager, they won 29 times, they only lost once, they conceded just 15 times, broke a new points record with 95, the League Cup was won, the double was won, Mourinho was going again. This time, though, they were out of the Cups. They were out of the League Cup to Charlton at the first hurdle on penalties. They bowed out to Liverpool, as we spoke of last week, in the FA Cup semi-final at Old Trafford. Europe proved a step too far once more with Barcelona going out in the uh, last 16 there. But with another £60 million spent, another 91 points was earned. Chelsea claimed that second league title in a row. A win over their nearest rivals, Manchester United, in the week. So I suppose it would be the week after what we're discussing. Now you've got the... Joe Cole skilling that 3-0 win over United, which summed up, summed up that game, really summed up Mourinho's dominance over the Premier League at that time. And to be fair, it's quite sad if you're a Chelsea fan, they could have broken their own record, set the previous season, if they'd have won the last two games to make it 97 points, but they would lose to Blackburn, they'd lose to Newcastle. And if they won those two games, would, be, would we be speaking about this title winning season more than the 2004-05 season? Would we speak of this season, the 2005-06 season, in and amongst the centurions of Chelsea, the Jurgen Klopp-Liverpool team, would we be speaking of this team in the same breath? Because I put it to our followers, which is the best Chelsea Premier League title winning season? And George, a, a Chelsea fan, says the 2004-05 season because they were one penalty away from an invincible season, which would have got them to 96 points. But as I've said previously on this podcast, I think the points tally in certain situations is better than going invincible because Man City didn't go invincible they got 100 points but I still think that season is better than the invincible season Harry Holland as well also says the 2004-05 season and I think this does get swept under the rug in terms of Chelsea's Premier League title winning season you've got Ancelotti which for me is 
a great team. They won the cup, the league and cup double, scored an insane amount of goals. Antonio Conte, obviously famed for that 3-4-3. Three, three. Also, another lauded Chelsea Premier League title win, maybe because it's the most recent. Um, you've got Mourinho's third one in there, which again, maybe uh, they've reached Conte, Ancelotti and Mourinho's third one. They all reached the same 90 plus points tally. Maybe Mourinho's in 20, uh, Ancelotti's in 2010 might have been just slightly lower than 90, but he's around the same mark. Mourinho in 2006, his team, they only conceded 22 goals. They hit another 90 points. They won a, another 29 games. So maybe if they'd have won those two games, we think about this team completely differently. But that is a what if, and a, I don't know if it's a useful what if or not. I don't know if I'm going to do it ever, but it's a what if. So we go to the European place. We've got Chelsea, we've got Man United, we've got Liverpool, all firmly in the Champions League. Liverpool made up the Champions League places. They've got Rafa's pragmatism. They've got a wonderful midfield. You've got Xabi Alonso, Gerrard in there, Mascherano, of course. Torres would be added soon enough so Liverpool could mount a charge for a title on a sort of a long-form tournament in the Premier League, of course, in 2009. But for now, they were sort of in between Champions League finals. They'd pick up the FA Cup against West Ham, uh, Man United, of, of course, they were just about to return to that prominence with Ronaldo and Rooney, as we've previously discussed on this show. And also, as we've discussed plenty, Spurs and Arsenal were jostling for fourth position. Spurs almost crashing the Champions League party, party as Everton did the previous year. But through a mixture of two North London derby draws and a helping of the norovirus, not the dodgy lasagna, as uh, a lot of people claim and is now obviously urban legend, Arsenal stuck into the Champions League through the back door with a win in Highbury's final game in a win over Wigan whilst Spurs, of course, lost at Upton Park. And it's something that they, of course, hope to do this time, qualifying through the back door into the Champions League. Bolton and Blackburn were also nearly runs. Bright spots in the Premier League overachieving, perpetually, it seemed. Bolton in eighth, they were approaching a ceiling with see Allardyce leave. The following season, Blackburn were achieving their best finish since the days of Jack Walker under Mark Hughes. Hughes steering the ship from the reign of Sooness, which ended sour. Sourness. You've got Craig Bellamy, Martin Gamps, Pedersen, David Bentley. They were all integral to a sixth place finish. And when you think about it now, Blackburn in sixth, Mark Hughes, 2006. It doesn't really add up, but they were such a good team. Martin Gamps, Pedersen was one of my favourite players as a neutral um Around this time, it was, just, it was fantastic. And Newcastle, their fans right now would kill for a seventh place finish right now. But in 2006, it, it was marking a a long malaise after the reign of Sir Bobby Robson. They'd suffered after the two silver medals of the 90s. They'd got four mid-table finishes either side of the either side of the new millennium. Bobby Robson, of course, took them back to the Champions League. They were top at Christmas, I think, in one season. Uh, but they couldn't break the glass ceiling. They couldn't. Sooness tried, Glenn Roder tried, Glenn Roder of course took over midway through this season, but currently Newcastle have only ever bettered that seventh place once more since, and it was of course under Hal- Alan Pardew and fifth place with Papi Cissé and Dembar at front in the 2011-12 season. So let's see how those teams did in Europe. We've got Newcastle qualifying, we've got Blackburn qualifying, we've got West Ham qualifying via Cup means, and we've got of course Tottenham qualifying as a failure to finish fourth we had an intertoto cup qualifier and they went by the name of Newcastle beating Lillistrom in the northern region and Newcastle qualified alongside such luminaries as FC20 and FC Raid and Maribor who went out in qualifying 
Ethnikos Akne, Kayseri Spor, Hertha Berlin, Marseille, they were out in the first round. Ogze, uh, Odense and Grasshopper Zurich, they went all out in the group stages and the only English team not to make it to the groups were West Ham. West Ham, the only club not to qualify in England by league position, of course, by that FA Cup runs-up spot to Liverpool. They lost 4-0 on aggregate to Palermo. So in the groups, the English teams were nearly perfect. Tottenham were perfect. Blackburn only dropped points away at Feyenoord. Newcastle, likewise, they dropped points away in Frankfurt. Tottenham got to the last 16 without even having to play their first round, first knockout round match, granting a, a bye against Feyenoord. And Spurs fans can thank Martin Gamps Pedersen for that after he was nearly bottled by Feyenoord and as a result Feyenoord were banned after the bottling of Morton Gamps Pedersen. Blackburn wouldn't be so lucky they wouldn't take up a last 16 spot. They'd lose 3-2 in Leverkusen but were unable to win at home bowing out at the last 32. Newcastle did make it beyond the last 32 though beating Belgian side Zulti Warragem 4-1 on aggregate but Warragem's Benelux friends Arsene Alkmaar proved sterner and the Dutch team would win out on away goals against Newcastle in the last 16. Spurs got through that particular hurdle with a couple of 3-2 wins over Braga and would be the last remaining English team in the UEFA Cup. But unfortunately, they'd suffer the same fate as many would around this time period. They would lose to the eventual winners, Sevilla. So, let's go to the other end of the table and we've got a lot of Sunderland memories to go through on this podcast. Jake Collinson, big Sunderland fan, he says he can't speak of the best memories of Sunderland in the Premier League due to the awful, awful story behind the player involved. And you've got to believe that's about a certain winger called, I'm not going to say his name. Anyway, so somehow managing to have a record points low tally in 2003, I think it was 19 points, then come back up and break the record, which is one of Jake's favourite memories. Milton Nunez, of course, the numerous escapes they've had Jake absolutely adores Allardyce. That's not Jake me, that's Jake. Jake Collinson there. I don't like Allardyce. And uh, less said about Moyes, the better. I can agree with him on that. And the banter of him agreeing to John Terry's Stamford Bridge farewell, which was an absolute farce. He also goes into detail about Paolo Di Canio calling the appointment weird as hell. It caused some ructions up here due to his, of course, his political ideologies. And he also recounts somehow nearly going a full Premier League campaign without a win at home. Of course, that ended by beating Fulham in a rearranged fixture that was called off due to a severe snowstorm and he included a fantastic picture there of a barely visible pitch at the uh, Stadium of Light. Dean Pope, another Sunderland fan, he discusses it in two eras, really. We've got the 1999 to 2001 era where we've got Super Kevin Phillips winning the European Golden Boot, him and Niall Quinn being one of the most prolific partners in Premier League history, being seventh twice, being second by Christmas. But then his second era, which he outlines, the 2001 to 2003, where it's building a stadium extension over funds for the team. You've got Niall Quinn never being replaced. Foreign players not making an impact. Don Hutchinson leaving after a contract dispute. You've got crucial injuries to Claudio Reina, Swartz, David Bellion refusing to play and being relegated with a record 19 points. And that record would be beaten this season, of course. Just 15 points this time round. Lelouch says breaking... Sunderland breaking the record twice for the worst Premier League team. And of course, that is until Derby came up. Harry Holland says the beach ball incident. Of course, that fantastic win over Liverpool there in the dark days of Liverpool post Rafa Benitez. And you've got Allardyce ripping off his shirt after sealing survival. Of course, survival wouldn't be Sunderland's this time. It would be a team on the opposite end of the country. And that was Portsmouth. Birmingham, they joined Sunderland in the Football League after their 
initial good start in the Premier League was over. They'd yo-yo a few times. They'd finally called time on their stay in the Premier League in 2011, which seems right now for good. The third team of last season's escapees was West Brom, but they, who would beat Portsmouth 2-0 on the final day of the previous season, seemingly transferred their powers onto Portsmouth. West Brom, of course, going down. You've got Portsmouth sacking Alan Perran in November, and then they took on Harry Redknapp. Redknapp, who doesn't like being called a wheeler dealer. Just watch that interview where uh, he slams an interviewer for it. But he would bring in Benjani. He'd bring in three Spurs lads for a combined snip at 7 million. You've got Noé Pamara, Sean Davis, Pedro Mendes, and the latter of which, of course, would spark a revival. Redknapp, he'd picked up eight points from an available 39. He'd picked them up in 18th place on 10 points and three points from safety. And by the time Manchester City came to visit on March the 11th, four months into his reign, Pompey had 18 points, they were 19th place and they were further five points back from safety, eight points away from that dotted line. They call West Brom's survival in 2005 the greatest escape, but I think this this must be a bigger points recovery. You've got also you've got Leicester City from 2015, you've got Aston Villa from 2020 as well. So the story goes, Pedro Mendes has hit goals for fun in the in training the week prior to the Man City game. Uh, Redknapp, of course, tells him to save some for the weekend. He does, hitting two pearls, one of which in stoppage time. As Birmingham and West Brom, the teams around them, finish 1-1 and ground was made up. With nine to play, we've got West Brom on 27, Birmingham on 24 with a game in hand and Portsmouth on 21. And Redknapp had two trips to London with his Portsmouth side. Sean, Men- Sean Davies and Pedro Mendes combined to beat West Ham 4-2 in the, pre- in the following game, whilst Birmingham and West Brom lose. Again, more ground made up. Birmingham lose their game in hand at Old Trafford. West Brom lose to Tottenham. And then at Craven Cottage, Portsmouth make it nine points from an available nine. Gary O'Neill bagging two goals. West Brom lose, but Birmingham getting four points in a week, which sees Portsmouth now with the game in hand and now with the ball in their court because they've got 27 points with that game in hand. West Brom have 27 points and Birmingham have 28 points. But a tricky run of fixtures, a tricky run of fixtures that Redknapp's Portsmouth team came out unscathed mainly. They got two draws late on against teams that were hoping to qualify for the Champions League in Arsenal and Blackburn. But again, two points from those games, pretty decent return really. And with five to play for each team, it left Birmingham above the dotted line only on goal difference. Portsmouth on 29 points with them, with West Brom on 28 and Sunderland at this point had 11 points and were relegated the following week after a draw at Old Trafford. You've got Birmingham losing the second City derby, West Brom losing at the Emirates, and then Portsmouth finally went above the dotted line. Gary O'Neill coming up trumps for Pompey in a 1-0 winner against Middlesbrough. But they would lose whilst Birmingham beat Blackburn in midweek, and it meant that Portsmouth stayed above the dotted line, but would be just temporary. Both of those teams on 32 points, minus 21 goal difference versus minus 25 West Brom, three points back, they needed a miracle. But then on April the 22nd, Portsmouth broke free for good. Matty Taylor scoring a penalty to beat Sunderland. Birmingham drawing at Goodison Park whilst West Brom. That miracle was over, they lost 3-0. Matty Taylor scoring and won another penalty, scored another penalty. Won Portsmouth the points at Wigan, which signalled the end of West Brom's time in the Premier League. And that meant at the same time at 3pm on that weekend, if Birmingham failed to win at home to Newcastle, They'd be down as well. They would, of course, draw nil-nil. Portsmouth escaped with a game to spare. Birmingham were down. West Brom were down. And Sunderland, of course, rounded out the three in a record akin to the, the Swindon's, Derby's and Bradford City's of this world. 
After this short break, we'll round things off with a 2000s trivial teaser and we've just got one correct answer. A couple of incorrect answers, but one correct answer. Welcome back. So we have one correct answer. Unfortunately, Will McCusker and George HS2706, your answer of Jonathan Woodgate was unfortunately incorrect. Our player was a centre-half. He'd played under Terry Venables. He'd played under Carlos Querez. He'd played with Quinton Fortune, David Batty, Ian Hart, Harry Kuehl and Rio Ferdinand. It wasn't Jonathan Woodgate. It was, of course, Lucas Radaby. Lucas Radaby, of course, played alongside Quinton Fortune for his national team of South Africa and played under Carlos Querez when Querez was the South African national team manager. Going a bit slightly further upfield, we've got a winger today, or rather a wide midfielder. That's a good clue. He's played under Alan Kirbishley. He's played under Lars Lagerback. Some of his teammates have been Pascal Segan, Latan Ibrahimovic, Olof Melberg, Bobby Zamora, and the great Mark Noble. Again, for those in the back, some of his managers, Alan Kirbishley, Lars Lagerback, played alongside Pascal Segan, Latan Ibrahimovic, Olof Melberg, Bobby Zamora, and of course, Mark Noble. Answer next week, also next week, on episode 40. We've got a cup final special. We've got the 2001 FA Cup final. We've got the 2010 Europa League final and the table never lies is going to the Bundesliga in the 2006-07 season where we might have a winner that isn't named Bayern Munich. If only we could say the same in current day. Elsewhere on the channel this week on the old YouTube, we've got a look back at the 2004-05 Premier League season in the Throwback Thursday. We're going to take a look at the 2000s, build a fantasy five-a-side team out of them. We're also going to be looking at Frankfurt, Real Madrid, Deportiva La Coruña, Trapattoni, Lazio, Cami, and the best captains that have won the European Championships in next Tuesday's Ranked. You can check us out on Aircast. You can check us out on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. That'll be up next week, next Wednesday. But until then, see you. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.